Welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Wildness, the preservation of the world. So seek the wolf in thyself. I'm Ian Woodworth. I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. And today, we're talking lycanthropes. Woohoo. So or Aru, Werewolf uh, in London. <laughs> get our inner Warren Zevon out. Yes. So, fun story about that before we get too far in. So, my dad was in the army, stationed in Germany during the 70s, and he was on guard post duty the night that that came out. Okay. And so, when you're on guard post duty, you can't, like, have a radio yeah. or anything on. So, he finishes up his shift at, like, 2 o'clock in the morning, goes back to the barracks, goes to sleep, wakes up the next morning and everyone on base is going aru at each other and he has no idea what's going on. Did I drink something? Was there something in the water? <laughs> so yeah, so that's the fun story that I have. That would be something to wake up to. It's just like, it's weird how culture can change that fast too. I mean, that that song, I mean, it's a fun song if you've not heard it. it again, it's a 70s song, so it's been around a while. It is a fun little song. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, I mean, again, lycanthropes are a high list on my favorites. I love lycanthrope lore. This was a lot of fun for me to delve into. We're actually going to try to break this up into two episodes. So today we're mostly going into real-world folklore and history of werewolves and lycanthropy. Next week we're going to try to take all of this and show you how you can bring it into a game. I think things like this where there is so much mythos that exists, history, culturally, I mean, werewolves are kind of everywhere. And I did focus largely on Western culture. I'm sure there is Eastern and Asian culture werewolves. I should have looked into. I apologize. I dropped the ball on that. Well, we did also only have so much time. time. Yeah, this is also fair. I will say this is probably a little ethnocentric on my part. I should have looked more into Eastern cultures. So I apologize for that. But again, almost every culture everywhere has some inkling of this changing from man to animal. I mean, you can go back even to where they had the cave paintings, you know, when there was this animalistic shaman type culture or beliefs. So, I mean, this conversion of man to animal and vice versa is a very old and strong human tradition. Right. And even going back to certain cultures where the animals that were able to take on human aspects were the gods. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even like something like the Egyptian deities where they had that half animal, half human form and older. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's go ahead and start off with a definition. Okay. So a base definition that we're going to deal with too. One is the medical definition. There is actually a medical term for lycanthropy and is a someone that believes they are an animal or they possess animal-like qualities. So you walk through, I think the first thing that comes to mind is the biblical example of King Nebuchadnezzar. And at some point he went mad and they said he was eating grass in the field like a common beast. So he thought he was an animal. He thought he was a moo cow and he was doing moo cow stuff. So I mean, hey, I'm a hippopotamus. And if you truly believe that you are a hippo, that falls under the condition of lycanthropy in a medical sense. Right. And then from an etymological standpoint... We have lycanthropy, which has Greek roots, lycan, meaning wolf, anthrope, meaning man. It literally means wolfman. Yeah. From lycos and anthropos. Yes. And then going on the other side, werewolf is a literal synonym. Yes. It's just going from a Germanic source as opposed to a Greek source. Because you have were, which was the Old English for man, wolf, which is wolf. 
So it's either a wolf man or a man wolf. You get to pick. Yay, syntax. <laughs> yeah. So in popular culture and mythology, the werewolf, the person who is able to shift back and forth between man and wolf, is the archetypal lycanthrope. Yes. Especially in games in more recent years, lycanthropy has taken on a slightly different definition going into covering all individuals who are able to transform between a normal human and some sort of other animal. Right. And again, this comes into a lot of culture, and I think early on, particularly with the wolves in particular, because uh, dogs were among the first creatures we domesticated. And with that, they are also pack hunters, and, and humans at this time had gone from a scavenging animal to a pack hunting animal. So there is a lot of relation. There is a lot of that primal to more refined, so reverting back to a primal. And again, it, it does have a lot of those really deep psychological roots. And for early humans, a pack of wolves... Was terrifying. Was a very real, very terrifying thing. Yes. Because the European wolves were much larger than North American wolves. Yes. And so they were... I mean, I think they are mostly extinct now if they're not completely extinct. I think they basically hunted them yeah. out of existence. But by and large, you know, a European wolf was a very real, very terrifying creature right. to a person. Yeah. Add to that the fact that they did hunt in packs. Right. And they would basically roam at impunity. Yeah. You know, they would do what they wanted to do. Something like a bear is going to have a lair and it's going to be something that you can figure out where it is and avoid it. Yeah, and bears were a single bear. And again, where you would have, you know, you might have two or three people, you might have five or six or a dozen wolves. A European wolf, for example, for a kind of consideration, if you've ever seen a great Pyrenees, slightly larger, a German shepherd, bigger than that, I mean, they were a very, very large dog, but more muscled, faster, a lot more vicious. And again, you were getting three, four, five, ten of them at a time. If you only had two or three humans, with them working in concert, it was a very mismatched fight. Yeah. So one thing that you can <clears throat> think of, the Irish wolfhound yes. was a dog bred to fight wolves. Right. You know, to hunt wolves. Yeah. Think of how big an Irish wolfhound is. Yeah, you're looking at 120, 130 pounds of dog. Yeah, and it's a dog that, you know, standing on the ground up to his shoulders is about four feet tall. Yeah. That is about the size of the European wolves. Yeah. That's also about the size of a European at the time. Again, they, they were of smaller stature than we tend to be today. Again, around the lower five feet was normal. If you weighed 150 pounds, you were a stocky European. Right. You were probably going toe-to-toe -to -toe with a single wolf. Maybe. Weight-wise. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. weight-wise. I mean, again, it wasn't too far off. And again, they're faster. They've got teeth. They're hunting in a pack. They're quadrupeds. Yeah, it's it was a bad day. <laughs> So it makes sense from a cultural <laughs> standpoint that the wolf would be the thing that you would latch on to because, yeah. you know, werewolves were supposed to be this terrifying entity. Yeah. And what was more terrifying on a daily, you know, relatable basis than a wolf? Right. Exactly. Yeah. There is that. There is also the pure psychological terror. You know, the basic horrors of any horror films, it is either being the prey of an animal 
or eventually becoming the monster yourselves are two of the hardcore tenets of any kind of psychological horror. You look at most horror films and you're going to fall into one of those two camps. Either you are prey, you are no longer the alpha predator, or you yourself become the monster. And this werewolf does kind of fit both of those in a weird way. Again, same thing with vampires as well. You know, again, we are not the biggest, baddest thing. We are not the thing that goes bump in the night. And then, too, eventually they could convert you or things like that. And we will talk about how that works later, which is meh. But that sense of losing your humanity and becoming the monster yourself is also a primal fear. Right. So let's go in and talk a little bit about... Some of the folklore. Okay, that, yeah. Because you did a whole bunch of digging on this, so I'm going to let you okay. do this. So, I mean, the concept of this werewolf goes back as far as we have writing almost. So, if you think back at the first collections of writing, the first story we have, we have the Epic of Gilgamesh. And we've got werewolves in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is kind of interesting. This was new to me. in the fact that Gilgamesh turned down at one point one of his lovers... Because she apparently turned her previous lover into a wolf. So whether that, you know, werewolf is an STI at this point, I don't quite know. Again, our collection of the Epic of Gilgamesh is not completed as fragmented. But apparently we are going back this far with werewolf lore that, hey, sleep with the wrong lady and she's going to turn you into a wolf, man. <laughs> Maybe she just had fleas. Oh, my. Yeah. I mean, I think those are called what, scabies <laughs> or crabs. <laughs> no, no okay. crabs are not fleas. <laughs> It should not itch and burn when you pee. No, absolutely not. <laughs> Luckily, they make an ointment for that. Now. They, they do. Yeah, you can get a shot for that. <laughs> so, I mean, this was a thing. So, yes, we are going back that far. Again, talking about this weird, uh, well, it's not weird, but talking about the mesh of human and animal form, you do obviously have Anubis. Uh, he was not a werewolf. He was a jackal. Right? He was a jackal, but I don't believe Anubis was a lycanthrope. He was his own no, entity. He was his own entity. Um, that is correct. The next earliest form or history I could find with actual, like, a consistent lore is kind of interesting. We, we actually go to the Greeks now, and I do love me some Greek lore and some Greek history. There was a King Lycan, and he was going to test Zeus, because testing your god is always a great idea. This always ends well. This, this has never ended poorly for anyone Anybody, ever. no. This is, I mean, if, if you ever have a question of faith, just go ahead and put God to a test, because whatever your god is, or whoever your god or goddess may be, just go ahead and test them. They love that. That's their favorite. They love showing... They love being questioned by mortals. They do, because, I mean, really, we're, we're just on a par with them. But anyway, Lycan wanted to see if Zeus was, in fact, all-knowing. So he took the very sensible step of slaughtering his own son and adding his entrails to the sacrifice that he was offering to Zeus that Zeus was going to come and eat. Zeus was not fooled. He realized there was, in fact, human entrails in his offering. And in his rage, he transformed King Lycos into a wolf. This is a very strange Greek myth with Zeus because it does not have Zeus having any kind of infidelity with anyone else. And so to round this out, we are going to say that the queen was now a widow, and I am very certain that Zeus offered certain comforts. Yeah, that seems on brand. <laughs> yeah, it really does. Um, like I said, I, I honestly questioned if this was in fact a Greek myth because Zeus didn't sleep with anybody. Because, you know, what is Greek mythology if not Zeus getting down? <laughs> that That is... <laughs> Not inaccurate. No, it is not. <laughs> I, again, it, it's the whole Facebook meme where you've got the giant tome, Greek mythology, and it's like a little pamphlet. Greek mythology if Zeus kept it in his pants. <laughs> right. Yeah. My favorite one of those is the one Avatar The Last Airbender 
and Avatar if Momo had a gun. Yes. (laughs) I love Momo. Momo and Appa are like two of the best. Momo, Appa, and Toph are the three best characters in Avatar. Toph, yeah. Hands down. Uh, Uncle Iro. Uncle Iro's way up there. Yes, yes. Toph and Uncle Iro are like shoulder to shoulder. But they they serve different roles. They They serve very different purposes. They do. Both are heroes. Uncle Iro is there to make you feel better about yourself. Later on, he was kind of a perv in the first season. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, fair. I mean, he, even Uncle Iro matured, which I love that about Avatar. Complete rabbit trail. Yeah. I love how the, the characters all matured. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Let's get back before we get caught up on the boulder. <laughs> uh. Yes. <laughs> Ian broke me this time. Well, good job. I give you points. <laughs> um, the other Greek myth... I found or the Greek folklore would deal with, and I forgot the exact city, but it was actually from the same region that King Lycos was from, that each year this Greek city would select an individual. They would have to leave town. They would have to strip down, leave their clothes on a tree, and swim across the lake. When they reached the other end of the lake, they were thought to transform into a wolf, where they would live for nine years. And if in that nine years they abstained from eating any human flesh, they could return to town in a human form. If they ate human flesh, they remained in wolf form. Again, if you know much Greek history, ostracism was a punishment for people who were either too rich or too delicate of a position to execute. So this seems to me like an explanation of why or what happened to someone who they ostracized, but they didn't want to say, hey, we ostracized Joe. Oh, he was selected for this sacrifice and he's got to be a wolf for nine years. And if he's a good wolf, he can come back, maybe? Yeah. The, the sound, this has a lot of, I mean, yes, Greek myth has a lot of fantasy. This sounds like an explanation for something else that was definitely going on. I can see the correlation between ostracism and this mythos lining up really, really easy. That that does make sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, again, there is this, and again, it's this whole thing, but you do tie back to that not eating a human flesh because King Lycos apparently fed human flesh to Zeus, and this was part of... King Lycos' punishment. Um, right. So and, again. and going back off of this being a metaphor. Right. You know, they get ostracized because they are perhaps doing something, you know, illicit, doing something predatory. Yeah. You know, from a cultural standpoint. Point. Yeah. Doing something that is detrimental to the society. Yeah. And so they are kicked out until they can remedy their ways and as long as they're not being a charlatan yeah somewhere else and you know getting kicked out of somewhere else you know if you can demonstrate that you have learned your lesson learned your lesson and you can be a productive member of society then you can come back yeah that makes a lot of sense i mean yeah if you're going to continue to be a problem then you can stay the hell out you know mm-hmm. and yeah that Absolutely, seems reasonable yeah. that seems a reasonable punishment that seems a reasonable thing get out of our city do your stuff if you can be cool for a couple of years we'll highlight you back you're on time out <laughs> right yeah so does that mean uh nora needs like a wolf hat when she goes on time out you turn her into a werewolf and stick her in the corner. No, she would enjoy that entirely too much. That would that would be completely contradictory to whatever the purpose of timeout would be. I get that. Going forward to Roman mythology, which are very similar. You do have Romulus and Remus who were suckled off of the she-wolf. They were not wolves. But Scipio was a wolf. You do have wolves being very prominent in Roman culture and Roman lore. You didn't have the full converting into a wolf, but again, you had people that wore the wolf pelts. Ian had looked up the thing because I had blanked on the name, the Velet 
Velites, Velites. Yeah, the Veles or Veles. the Velites is plural. Right. Um, they were skirmishers. They would wear a wolf pelt in formation during military things. This will actually become something we're going to talk to a little bit more as we talk about right. the Norse. And talking about the prominence of wolves and such in Roman culture, a fun little tidbit that I found looking up etymologies is that in Roman society, the term lupa okay. for she-wolf mm-hmm. was also a slang term used for prostitutes. Oh, And apparently has carried over into variants in Spanish, Italian, and French. Interesting. I I was unaware of that. That's actually really interesting. And I wonder if that has to do with solely with the suckling of the... Solely with the tale of Romulus and Remus, yes. I'm going to let that go. I'm just going to go ahead and let that... Yeah, we're just going (laughs) to... Not not for the podcast. (laughs) I'm even going to leave that pause, that pregnant silence, (laughs) stay in. Okay, yeah. Not for the podcast, boys and girls. (laughs) This is one of those things. I'm going to go ahead and plug the Patreon now where we've talked about having Patreon exclusive. That thought might wind up on the Patreon exclusive. Maybe. Maybe. We'll see. (laughs) We're not going to put anything too incriminating. Exactly. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Just moving on. So, again, going through... There was this concept that carries through. Again, there is a lot of similarities between Greek and Roman cultures. With this, there is a lot of understandable similarities between the Roman and the Norse cultures. And now we get this different form of lycanthrope or werewolf. Instead of being cursed by a deity, you have something called the Hexen Wolf. And this was actually first brought up with the uh, Volsung Saga, which is one of the few actual Nordic mythologies that we have written down that you could put on a wolf skin. And by putting on this wolf skin would transform you and give you the abilities and fervor of a wolf. So going through, most people know the concept of the berserker, where they'd wear the wolf skin and they'd go out. There was another called the Wolfnar? Wolfnar. Ulfnar. Ulfnar. There we go. Yes, I actually wrote it down and I still can't pronounce it. Ulfnar. And they wore a wolf pelt in battle. And again, I'm, I'm saying if you're in a melee combat, you're dizzy, you've got mud, blood, and sweat in your eyes, you're, you got snocked in the head, your ears are ringing... And you see a six-foot dude in a wolfskin wielding an axe running across your field of vision? Yeah, they had a werewolf in their army, dude. You couldn't tell me otherwise. You couldn't tell that was a dude in his skin? Sure. Or it was a wolf on two legs wielding an axe. Yeah, I'd believe it. Yeah. And actually, typically, with most of the Scandinavian cultures, the berserker was someone who wore a bear pelt. Right. Not a wolf pelt. And it was... It has been commonly misconstrued as being someone who would get into this big fervor and get very reckless and yeah. wild and, you know, wailing and gnashing teeth and foaming at the mouth and, and being all that. invincible. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The term berserker was more likely sort of synonymous with like a champion, like a defender. Okay. Like the bear pelt would be the symbol. Okay. Because most of your nobility, most of your jarls and such would have a berserker. Yeah. That would be their champion. That would be the person who fought on their behalf. Makes sense. Granted, this is coming from a video that I watched a while back. Uh, Lindy Beige on his channel has a whole... It was like a 20-minute video talking about berserkers in Norse mythology. Okay. And Celtic mythology. And uh, the few depictions that they have of the berserker being this almost rabid individual where, you know, they're, you know, chewing on the edge of their shield right. and all of that. All of those stories end up with the protagonist of the story shortly after this display of madness killing the berserker. 
oh, that's almost a little disappointing. <laughs> and it's almost more of a sense of, you know, this person got their position not from skill, but because they were the biggest, meanest son of a bitch. They were just a big, dumb brute. They were just a big, dumb brute. Okay. And so whenever they actually came up against someone who had actual skill, right, they weren't able to perform to their fullest potential. I like that. I like the story. And this kind of... Because, again, we are a tabletop podcast. When you deal with the thing and that barbarian rages and he rushes off and does something incredibly stupid... And now the cleric's got to heal him. (laughs) Absolutely, yes. It it makes perfect sense. It really does. I kind of wonder, too, in the story, if this is where, you know, you have your villain or your enemy, and they kind of, you know, level up or they get that extra buff of strength so it is a more valiant or heroic feat that your hero defeats. I wonder if that could be part of it as well. Potentially, yeah. But I do like the fact that, you know, and again, because... Also going back to as well as the Roman military was trained. And that was the fact is they fought as a unit. They fought together. And if someone were to break ranks with that, they were punished extremely harshly. So when they were fighting the Celts, when they were fighting the Nords, when they weren't, were fighting the Germanic tribes, you would have a champion or a person who would, you know, thump their chest and step up. And because they were fighting a unit versus an individual hero combat... Yeah, they would generally be dispatched fairly quickly. I could see this being one of those things that translates where, you know, again, proper training, self-restraint, control are the things being prized versus just raw, mindless strength. Right. Yeah. And going back to that point that you just made, you know, that was a big cultural difference between the Romans and the Germanics. Yeah. Because the Germanic tribes, there's not as many people in your tribe. Yeah. So it would very frequently be a very ritual combat. Yes. Where, you know, both sides would come out with their full armor and they would rattle their weapons and shake their shields. And at the end of the day, the two champions would walk out. Yeah. They would fight each other. One person would win. Yeah. And quite often, that was the end of it. Right. That was dispute settled. Mm -hmm. We have a clear victor. We have a clear vanquished. Yeah. I mean, you go through that. And even going backwards here through Roman and Greek, you have that. Again, you look at the Battle of Troy. You had Achilles and Hector. Going to a biblical standpoint, if you know your biblical history, you have, you know, David and Goliath. Was this combat by champion or champion combat? Was a common, uh, I don't want to say a more primitive, but was an older form of combat. It was less, I don't know, I don't want to say civilized because that's not the right word, but it was a less refined, less industrialized I guess yeah, you could say that could be form it. of war. Again, it was less of a military complex and more of a, this is the best we got. If the best you got can't beat our best, then obviously the rest of us can beat you too, which would make sense in a smaller combat. So I do see that as well. Right. And this also <laughs> goes into, you know, just the mindset. Yeah. Because, you know, Rome was expanding. Yeah. And the whole point of having their armies was to force expansion. Yes. And so you're not going to risk everything on the outcome of a single one-on-one fight. Right. You're going to utilize this whole well-trained force fighting in units yeah. to completely annihilate right. any armed resistance to your occupation. Exactly. And then you set up a garrison so you can maintain it versus fighting over a hunting ground or a farming field or a resource, a mine or whatever, you know, a single resource 
that it would almost be like a tribe war or a clan war or a feud war where it was just over a small point. Rome was taking over huge swaths of land. Yeah. Yeah. So again, this was a big cultural divide. So again, this, I, I really do, I mean, we could probably go way into depth on the what the Berserker was and how it functions. But I really do like that the fact that the Berserker was actually a breakdown versus a something you would aspire to. It's weird how that's kind of translated over time. Well, that is what it has become right. in modern parlance. Right. It's something that has transformed based off of cherry-picking individual accounts. Yeah. As opposed to what the entire thing was as a whole. Now, this would be something I would be really interested in. Ian and I, obviously, we've mentioned both times, are from America, and America does have this bootstrappy, cowboyism kind of individualist. I wonder if this translation of the berserker ideal translates is the same somewhere like in Europe, where it's less and you have more of a communal society versus, you know, it's all do stuff by yourself out here. And I wonder if that is an Americanism or if it is a modern that would be something we would have to look into, but yeah. I'm going to hazard that because this was implemented in games that are primarily originating in America, initially based off of Pulp Fiction yeah. stories that were also primarily written in America. Right. I wonder if, you know, there is that very American influence on that if we have listeners that are across the pond or would know i would love to hear from you to see if this is yeah because i am honestly like extremely curious about this now again there is a certain amount of cultural or ethnocentricity that you just you can't break away from unless you take that time to step back and look i would be really curious to see how that relates because I could see that totally being an Americanism, which, again, is interesting and cool because culture and stories do follow culture. Again, looking at the Greeks and the Romans, you know, you have the same type of story. But, again, back on the lycanthropy. Yeah. Going further on, I have found some Celtic stories of lycanthropes and werewolves. They are interesting there's not a lot. They weren't well collected. I can never pronounce the names, so I don't have a lot. But again, they would transform into wolves for various things, either through skins, kind of like your hexen wolves or different things. The interesting thing is with these, it's that sometimes they were either royalty or they were hired by the royalty. They were not mindless beasts. They were strong. They would go hunting when they were in wolf form. They'd call it go a wolfing. They were possessed of their mind so they made their own actions there was one and the only time they killed someone is they the one werewolf killed his wife and her lover because she was out having an affair and she left him for this other man and it was considered a justified killing you know at that point but again so there is celtic werewolf lore i wasn't able to get too deep into it but i did like the fact that even within this lore they were not bestial they just had animalistic attributes but they weren't you know chaotic they weren't evil which as we get into D, you start seeing more of this where you have lycanthropes they're not evil they're not chaotic they have different alignments which i think is a good reflection of that too okay, so we keep referencing back to the dresden files for a lot of things right and honestly the book uh, was Wolf. it was full, it full moon. moon yeah it book was, number two book number two that, that was one of my favorites yeah even though it happens before he really settles in yeah. to the actual making it less episodic, more structured. Right. I really enjoyed that. And it has three different types of yeah. werewolves in it. It does. And so this Celtic style werewolf that you're talking about right. sounds a lot like the alphas. 
A bit more like the alphas, yeah. I Where think, they are wolves that have a human intelligence. Yes, that would tie in very well. I actually had not put those two together because he does also deal with the Hexen wolves, like I said, where they have yeah. the wolf belt. And again, that is very Nordic. And a Lugaru. A Lugaru, which we will talk to in a bit, which the Lugaru is the French version. And it's actually closer tied to the older Greek version where you have this spiritual or deific curse. So going through the French version, the Lucarou was actually also mentioned by St. Augustine of Hippa back in the 5th century. So, I mean, we are dealing with some good old medieval stuff now. And it carries through... Almost pre-medieval. Yeah. And it carries through up into colonial America. You know, you had people mentioning Lucarous at various points. But this happened because a person was cursed because they were not a good Catholic, particularly if they had not met religious obligations like confessing. I read one account where if you had not confessed for Easter for seven years, because seven being a magical number, you were cursed to become a Lugaru. The curse would last for 101 days. Again, that kind of goes into the whole year and a day thing. If a peasant could run away for a year and a day, a serf was considered free. So again, there's a lot of numerology and magical numbers involved with this as well. I kind of want to look at the early Catholic calendar and see if there is a High Holy Day 101 days after Easter. I would almost guarantee so. Okay, now I've got to think. Because Easter falls pretty close to spring equinox. Well, Easter is the Sunday after Christianized Astara. Right. Which is the first... Which is the festival of the spring equinox. So, those don't know the reason why Easter, the day of Easter, changes all the time. It is Easter is officially the first Sunday after the first full moon, after the spring equinox. So there's that. And so going March, April, May, June. The early June. Early June. The fire festival is... You're almost to midsummer. Yeah, you're almost at midsummer. So that does come really, really close. I am sure there's a holy day that comes just before the fire festivals. I Yeah, I'm going to have to look at this. I, I would almost be certain. Yeah. Good call on that yeah, one. Yeah, I, d- I didn't think of that when we were <laughs> discussing beforehand, but yeah. They, yeah. You know, because there has to be a reason for 101. One, yeah. Generally, again, it's 100 days and then the plus one. So again, a year plus one. Right. Um, 100 being a number of completion. Generally, you'd have your centuries. So if you had your rosaries, you'd have 10, 10 counts or 10 decades. And so you'd count that out. So you yeah. count that off a rosary would generally be 100 beads, which were also a counting tool like an abacus. Okay. Because you didn't carry calculators with you back then. You had your rosary. So, and again, it would be easy to track too, 100, because it would just be a full rosary. Okay. There's a lot of different things with old cultural lore. Like I said, I love this kind of... Again, listeners, if you know more, if you're Catholic and you know more about the Catholic Holy Days, please let us know. We'd love to to delve more into this. You can fill me with folklore and mythos and religious metaphysics all day. I love it. (laughs) And please do correct us if we're wrong. Yes, absolutely. Because I am not infallible. (laughs) No, I am not the Pope. (laughs) I would love to be the Pope for two weeks. This is a completely different story. Again, different rabbit trail. Two weeks as a Pope needs to happen. (laughs) I could be a Cardinal. Okay. (laughs) You've not heard about this. No. So the Pope can choose secret Cardinals. Oh, Yes, I've heard about that. Yes, who can basically they are cardinals for as long as the Pope is alive. And he doesn't have to tell anybody that they're a cardinal. Oh. And if the Pope dies without making it official that you're a cardinal, then you're no longer a cardinal. Oh. Your office dies with the Pope. Well, I mean, hell, I'm a cardinal then. (laughs) I may or I may or may not be a cardinal. (laughs) 
I, I, you I can't prove it otherwise. <laughs> that is awesome. I need to add that to my resume. I may or may not be a Catholic cardinal. I Schrodinger's cardinal. Yes, I enjoy blasphemy far too much to be cardinal. Uh, anyway, yes. Back on topic, werewolves. Yes. So the Lou Guru, while you had this deific curse. There was only a, a single cure for the deific curse for this cardinal. Um, someone Luguru. That, the Luguru. Yes. <laughs> wow. Being cursed as a cardinal is something completely different. <laughs> tweet, tweet. <laughs> so if you were a Luguru, there was only one cure for Luguru. Someone that knew you previously before you had transformed into this wolf creature would have to recognize you and draw your blood. But at that point... They could not mention it. And if either of you had mentioned this, then you both would eventually revert back into a Luguru. So it was this weird secret thing, too. So maybe it was like a secret cardinal. Maybe that's... Potentially. Yeah. But that is also a fairly common thing in a lot of folklore, is that, you know, somebody transforms into something. If somebody else is able to cure them, right. they have to keep it secret, secret or otherwise it reverts. Yeah. And I like the fact that it doesn't revert for the one person, it reverts for both. So now they've got this shared secret. So now they are forever linked with, um, you know, knowing each other's secret. Yeah. Or, you know, this could be like a metaphor for, you know, being in the closet. Very potentially. I mean, that would make a bit of sense. I mean, hey, I know your secret, you know my secret type thing. It's like the difference between Methodists and Baptists is that Methodists can say hello to each other in the liquor store. Yes. Another silent pause. Uh, yes, another pregnant pause. We're going to keep moving on. Yes, okay. So, going through, I did find one thing doing my research that it really broke my heart. This wounded me so very deeply. Speaking of Americanisms in our folklore. Yeah. So, I love, love, as, as far as Laura, have always been fascinated with this rivalry between vampires and werewolves. It always seemed very primal, very vicious, and I'm like, yeah, and I, I was really looking forward to seeing where this lore started. Oh my god, what's the root of the, what? What started this huge feud? Werewolves and vampires, and oh my, this is gonna Universal Studios, yep. 1940, 1940, boys and girls. Universal Studios wanted to do a crossover: werewolf meets Franken, or the Wolfman meets Frankenstein versus Dracula. That's where it all starts from. I was crushed. <laughs> <laughs> that said, great job, Universal Studios. This. Carried well. And I mean, there's a lot that feeds into this. Again, the concept that the vampires are aristocratic. They're civilized. They're high society where the werewolf, again, is primal and rural and generally based off of strength where a vampire is going to use wit. So again, you do pit these polar opposites. They are both terrible creatures of the night. The vampires thrive in the night while the werewolf is cursed by the moon. Again, the whole full moon thing. Same damn movie. Same damn movie. So yes, the werewolf on a full moon and the vampire werewolf feud. Same movie. It was a stupid 1940s crossover. I'm going to have to watch this movie now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the whole establishing vampires as aristocracy, that well predates the yeah, movie. Yes. I mean, that... You know, going all the way back to Bram Stoker, yeah. Dracula is right. Dracul, right. who is a landed noble, right? Is Baron? No, he's Count. Count. Yeah, that's right, Count. Count, Count Dracula. Yeah, Duh. Duh. But going through and talking about Dracula, and this is one of those things. If you take your folklore and think about it, sometimes you break your favorite things. So 
looking at Dracula. Dracula was able to take a wolf form. He had a bit of this lycanthropy in his own right. So it is kind of strange that there would be a feud between vampires and werewolves since vampires could themselves turn into wolves. Again, delving back into some Greek mythos and then some Eastern European legends, there was a thought of a creature called a revenant which was created if you improperly destroyed a werewolf. So if you just killed a werewolf and left it out or buried it and did not properly dispose of it, it would rise at night as a blood-drinking monster, which is extremely similar to a vampire. In fact, some people think that the vampire mythos and the revenant mythos one sprung from the other. So if you were to kill a werewolf, you had to burn and dispose the body. If a revenant rose from this, the revenant had to be decapitated and the head thrown into a river where its sins would sink it to the bottom of the river and prevent it from rising. Other mythos was you killed a revenant much in the same way you would kill a vampire. You would stake it through the heart to pin it to the ground. You would burn it. You would salt it. You would otherwise put rocks on its chest or in its mouth to prevent it from rising from the grave once it was dead. So yeah, I, and that seems perfectly legit to me yeah. as, as a precursor for modern quote-unquote vampires. Vampire yeah, and so again, it's weird. So as much as I love this vampire-werewolf feud, because I always thought that was great lore, and I will also tip my hat to White Wolf Games because they really built on that as well. Yeah, completely a modern fabrication. And again, the werewolf and the vampire actually have a lot more in common going back through the myths than current. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. So, I mean, that brings us up pretty much to modern times and what we got. So, again, there is a lot to do. We've discussed how we... Oh, one thing I did forget with the Lugaru. There is a Caribbean version of the Lugaru as well. And I don't know a lot of this. I only saw a touch on it. But um, with the Caribbean, where there was a lot of influence from um, African and French cultures blend. So, you have that, again, with the Creole in Louisiana and through the Caribbean. There was a Caribbean Lugaru that was made f via a Caribbean curse or a African magical curse, but their Lucaru could fly. And a flying werewolf is just a little terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I get that because the combination of, you know, the French and then the African slave population, those cultures mixing. Yeah. It's only natural that their mythologies would, would start mix to as well. mix yeah. as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it makes perfect sense. And I mean, honestly... Culturally, cuisine, there's a lot of really awesome things that have come from that. And I love, even historically, I love when cultures start to intermix because you do get these wonderful creations. Art, culture, architecture, science, lots of things comes when cultures start to mix. So I do love that. But going through, like I said, this is what I had found folklore-wise. So as we next week start talking about, or not next week, but in two weeks start talking about how to bring these to the games. We're going to bring these issues and these ideas up because these are great ways and great story prompts to bring things to your table or ways you can put a twist on your game or plot devices so you can actually use these as mechanics. I love the idea of using real world history and lore for your games because there's so much depth there already. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, going back to some of our previous episodes, yeah. you know, there was whenever we were talking about one of the lower planes, I think it was Carcerai. I need to know more where you're going to pick. With the one with the earth moats. Was that Carcerai or was that no, Gehenna? Gehenna. Carcerai was the one with the gel. The one with the earth moats was... I think it was Gehenna. Yeah. But there was an instance where, you know, there was one of the layers with the frozen wasteland. Yeah. 
and there were ice wolves, the winter wolves that would patrol. Right. And those specifically, if you were to kill them and properly treat the hide, you could wear it to turn into yeah, a wolf. Yeah, and exactly. Wolf. And that turns exactly, that would be exactly a hexen wolf. And this exactly. ties back into our Nordic lore. Yeah. So there are tie-ins to all of these yeah. throughout. And so next time we're going to be talking a little bit. Uh, we're not going to go into a whole lot of detail on the history behind the various lycanthropes within D&D lore. But we are going to pull some examples yeah. from older editions of D&D and talk about some of the variants. Right. So we're going to, you know, the more popular ones, especially in 5e, the werebear, wereboar, were-rat, were-tiger. Yeah. Some of the other lesser-known variants from older editions like the were-jackal. Always um, fun. Were-panther. Okay. Uh, wear sharks. Oh my. No, there are a lot of things. And then talking about how to take some different creatures and make your own custom lycanthropes. I would love that. Speaking of wear sharks, do you remember the old, it was like a late 90s cartoon where they tried to do Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Street Trails. sharks? Yes, street yeah. sharks. Yeah, Jossa. <laughs> but again, too, and as we said last week, uh, talking about the OGL, I do want to touch. The OGL has. Thankfully, been sorted out in what seems to be a favorable way. This said, we still do want to promote TTRPGs in general and game creations. And so, while we do talk about lycanthropes and we will show where a lot of this D&D lore comes from, using this real-world mythology and lore or using it to build your own, you can bring these into your own system and create your own games or your own platforms or your own modules. So again, we will try to sit there and try to give some direction on that as well. Yeah, the immediate use that I can see is Monster of the Week. Yeah. You know, using this to flavor a lycanthrope monstrous handbook. Oh yeah, that'd be great. Um, Because the monstrous is one of the playbooks in Monster of the Week. And the variants are, you know, uh, werewolf, uh, vampire. There's a couple other ones. Right. But yeah. Using these differences, using these options to try and flavor your monstrous playbook, that sounds really cool. It really does. And again, because there is so much story already laid out, if you just, I mean, again, I cannot Amazon, buy a book, get a library card, visit your local library, because Lord knows your library needs all the support it can get. And information's there, and you can build so much. Uh, Online and research if you don't want to go to your library, but... The information is easily accessible, and you can do so much with it. All right. I think that brings us to the end of today's episode. It does, yeah. And then next time we will be talking a little bit more about, you know, specific lycanthropes in TTRPGs and how to mechanically adapt that a little bit. Right. From, you know, taking the folklore and converting it. Putting it on the table. Yeah. So thank you, everyone, for listening today. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email, undercommontaste at gmail.com, or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, Twitch, and Mastodon at undercommontaste. We are on Patreon, patreon.com slash undercommontaste. That's where we put all of our write-ups. I just finished up Forever Home, awesome. my solo journaling RPG about the perils of home ownership. You can get a free copy if you join our Patreon at any level, or you can jump over to our itch store, undercommontaste.itch.io, to pick up a copy for $3. Awesome. 
Uh, finally, we are on Discord. There's a link for the Discord in our show notes, and we'd love to have you come over and chat with us. Absolutely. If this is your first time listening, welcome. We're so glad you found us. You can find our other podcasts wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, iTunes, Spotify, all of those. As always, please subscribe and give us a rating and review. This helps increase our visibility and lets us know what you want to hear more of. Stay safe, everyone, and we will see you all in two weeks. Happy gaming. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Kroll and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycroll.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycroll. Our logo is by David Sutherland. You can find more of David's work on deviantart.com slash davidsutherland or on instagram.com slash willx underscore 73. We'll be back in two weeks, so stay safe, and we'll see you then.